0: If you'd like to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, I'll be reading verses 25 through 37. Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him for dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And when he had set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave him to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said to him, He who showed mercy on him, and Jesus said, Go and do likewise. I'm delighted to
1: be with you this morning. We appreciate the presence of everyone here, especially if you're visiting with us. We're glad that you're here, and we want you to always come back and uh, be with us given the opportunity. Now, two Sundays ago, we walked the road to a changed life as we followed uh, Saul of Tarsus as he became the Apostle Paul, as he walked the road to Damascus. This morning we're going to, walk the, road to uh, or walk the road to service. The road to service. And we might call that the road to Jericho. And so we want to notice a few things this morning concerning the parable uh, put before us. But before we do that, we want to mention just a, a few other things. Now yesterday was what we recognize as Veterans Day. We honored uh, our veterans, or, or Friday was Veterans Day, or the Observed Day, and yesterday was actually the day. But Veterans Day is a day wherein the citizens of this nation honor our military and former military people. Now, what do we call them? We call them service men and women. Why? Because they dedicated their service to this great nation. And we honor them for that. And it is observed every single November the 11th of each year. Every one of them. It's always November the 11th. Do you know why? Have you ever studied that aspect of this wonderful holiday? It is observed on November the 11th because World War I officially ended at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. So we observe it on November the 11th every single year. And it coincides with other holidays around the world. Armistice Day, Remembrance Day, as we look toward and we recognize and honor those who brought World War I to a close. Have you ever thought about what is the foundational support for service of any kind? You must first have a desire to serve, mustn't you? You have to want to serve or one will never serve. You know, I can recall growing up, my dad had a favorite phrase, at least when he was dealing with me. He had a favorite phrase that said, always be a leader and never be a follower when it came to the world. My dad did not want me to behave as the world behaved. He wanted me to stand up and do the right thing even when I didn't want to or it was inconvenient. And he instilled that in me. And I can still to this very day, and I'll be 47 next month, I can hear those words always be a follower and never be, or always be a leader and never be a follower. I can hear that just as if he was standing next to me. Now, I did my best to do that. For the most part, I tried to be an upstanding and honorable individual. I tried to stick to what he taught me, but the world does not want people to do that. The world doesn't want that. They don't like it because someone who lives a godly life will shine a light into their darkness and show them for what they are. I want to tell you a true story. At approximately 3.20 on the morning of March the 13th in 1964, 28-year-old Kitty Genovese was returning to her home in a nice middle-class neighborhood in in Queens, New York. She parked her car in a nearby parking garage and she turned the lights off and she started walking to her second-floor apartment some 35 yards away. She got as far as the street light when a man came out of the darkness and he attacked her and stabbed her. She began to yell, Oh my God, he has stabbed me. Well, she was surrounded by apartment buildings and lights began to come on and people began to yell and and one man yelled out said, Let that girl alone. Well, the attacker just kind of slunk back into the darkness and and the lights went off and there was no more yelling and he came back. And he grabbed her again and he, he stabbed her again and then she again cried out, I'm dying, I'm dying. And again the lights came on, the windows opened up and on many of the uh, nearby apartments and the attacker again, he just slunk back into the darkness and, and went away. Well, Miss Genevieve staggered to her feet and she began to walk to her apartment and at this point now it is... Uh, Fifteen minutes later, it's 3.35 in the morning, and she makes it as far as the steps leading up into her apartment. And he comes back a third time, and he stabs her. This time it was fatal. Well, it was 3.50 when the police arrived, or when they got the first call, and they arrived very shortly after that. They responded quickly. In fact, they got there in two minutes, but it was too late. She had already died. Now, Kitty Genovese is a name that would become symbolic in the public mind for the dark side of our national character. People who just simply didn't put forth any effort to serve. It would stand for Americans who were too indifferent, who were too frightened or too alienated or too self-absorbed. And you can add to the list, they simply did not want to get into trouble. They didn't want trouble. They didn't want to have to step outside of their comfort zones. Detectives investigating the murder discovered that no fewer than 38 of her neighbors had witnessed at least one of her killer's three attacks, 38 of them, but had neither come to her aid or had called the police. Leave that girl alone as you shut your window, turn your light back off and go back to bed. The one call made to the police for help for Miss Genevis came only after she was already dead. Now some of you may have heard that story and it may be a defining moment of urban apathy in the latter half of the 19th or the 20th century when that happened a lot of people had some different thoughts concerning the events it was shocking it was bizarre and it was not at all an example of how people lived in our nation In fact, the statement was said, what was wrong with those people anyway? Now, our text this morning is the first century equivalent of what happened to Miss Kitty Genevieve in 1964, but it had an ending that we wish would have happened for her. This parable has come to be known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. It was told in response to a question posed by a lawyer who hoped that he might catch Jesus up in a predicament. He wanted to catch Him up on the horns of a dilemma. And so he comes and he asks the Lord, he says, what is the essential requirements of the law that I might obtain heaven? Of course, like so many other times, when he was approached in this manner, Jesus didn't simply give an answer, but he asked a question, didn't he? He said, "You know the law what does it say in essence you know what the, you're a lawyer you're a doctor of the law that's what a lawyer was then not a legal expert but a an expert in the law of Moses he said, you know the law what does it say? Of course he asked a question to answer a question and that demonstrates his brilliance in dealing with those who are hard-hearted notice what the Lawyer said, He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus said, Go do that and you will have eternal life. Not to be deterred, the lawyer still trying to extract himself from a situation that had crumbled down all around him. He said, Well, who is my neighbor? He wanted a loophole in the law, didn't he? He was looking for an escape. But people have always tried to reduce God's law down to the smallest common denominator, one in which they can live with. That's how the world looks at God's laws. How can I dwindle that down? How can I make that smaller and get it into a position where I can live with it? See, the idea of changing my life so God can live with me is absolutely out of the question. See, most people would would love to believe that loving one's neighbor is loving those who love them, or at least loving people who are lovable. That's not what we just read. Loving my neighbor then comes to mean doing nice things for those who will probably do nice things for me. What am I going to get in return? What do I get for living such a life? Peter said, Lord, we've given up everything. Now what do we get? He said, have you really given up everything? But is that the kind of service that Jesus expects from us? Doing the bare minimum? Doing just enough to get by? I think the parable addresses service. The road to Jericho demonstrates service. We want to be on the road to heaven, but to get to heaven, we have to be on a, on a road to service, don't we? But if we're going to be able to understand service, we must first define what it is. That's my first point. To define service, in general, we have to define the people of the parable. Service is not defined by those who are worthy it is defined by those who are needy and it's absolutely appropriate for the church to help those who are not christians even though our forbidding brethren do not agree with that galatians 6 verse 10 paul commanded as we have therefore opportunity as we have an opportunity Let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. We can help any person we want to help who is in need of help. Now we have to be judicious. We have to be honorable with God's uh, material blessings that He's given to us. We can't just give uh, money away and food away to those who will not help themselves because they are breaking God's law. But we can help any who is needy. What I see is the most remarkable thing in this parable, or at least one of them, every time I read it, I discover another most remarkable thing of the parable, is the man who fell among thieves. He was helped by a Jew who, given, or he was helped by a Samaritan who, given the opportunity to return the favor, probably would not have done so. Because Jews hated Samaritans. And the feeling was mutual. That is just amazing to me. Given the opportunity to come upon a Samaritan who had fell among robbers and thieves and beaten nearly to death, I feel like that this man would not have helped the Samaritan had the shoe been on the other foot. The Jews hated them. They looked down on them, they they viewed them as half-breeds and worse than an animal. But how do we know the man robbed was a Jew? It doesn't say he was a Jew, we don't know that much about him. But where was he headed and from where did he come? He was coming down from Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem was where the temple was. Anywhere from Jerusalem was down. So he could have been going north and still going down. Because it was on a mountain. He had been there, likely, because he had been there to worship. Now, did everybody that was in Jerusalem, were they Jews? Well, no. But there were no Samaritans in Jerusalem. They wouldn't go to the capital city of that nation. In fact, the Jews wouldn't go into Samaria. They would walk all the way around that part of the country so they wouldn't have to walk through its borders. The parable transitions as we look at it, as we're trying to define service. The parable transitions from people to those who lacked pity toward their fellow man. The first to find this man on the wayside was a priest. He was coming down from Jerusalem and he passed by on the other side of the road. Saw the man laying there. Now, a lot of people have tried to make excuses for this priest and saying, well, he didn't want to come in contact with a dead body in case the man had died. Therefore, he could not perform his ceremonial exercises, his obligations in the temple. But again, from where was he coming? Down from Jerusalem. He had already been to the temple. He had no excuse and he would have still been able to carry out his duties when it came around to be his time again. Now this is one of the most shocking and off-putting aspects of the parable. Do you know how the Jewish people looked to the priests? As the holiest people in the nation. Really? This is your best example of the holiest people in the nation a man has been beaten nearly to death the priests were taught the scriptures they were entrusted with the law of moses they were entrusted in uh teaching that passing that on and this man has an opportunity to help his neighbor do we believe for a moment that God thought that was okay well of course not well someone says well at least he went to investigate the situation he did he he did look over there anyway no. this priest was not reflecting God's character. Then we have someone else that that lacked pity. This is the Levite. Now, he did cross the street, cross the road. He went over, I imagine, laying in the ditch or a depression there beside the road, and he looked looked at the man, looked down on him. He actually went to see what was going on. Let's praise him for that, right? I heard someone say the other day that certain people do things they ought to do, and they act like they need a pat on the back. Some man says, well, I take care of my children. Well, you're supposed to. What do we want? A sticker for that? We're supposed to take care of our children, aren't we? We're supposed to guide them in the ways of God. We're supposed to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. He walked over and looked down at the man. Does he need a pat on the back? No, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. He didn't have pity for this man. He's not the example. Well, just like Kitty Genevieve's neighbors. These men looked out. They saw something was amiss. But they just really didn't want to get involved because I'm sure they felt like it was an inconvenience. They didn't want trouble. I don't think that that these two men were necessarily monsters. I don't think that Kitty Genovese's neighbors were necessarily monsters. I think if they had families, they loved them. I think if they had families and friends and things of that nature, they would have done the things necessary to help them in some way. But like her witnesses, they simply didn't do anything and they ignored it. I think one of the saddest parts of the parable is we're talking about two... Religious professionals. They were caught up in a lifeless and a service-less religion. Now they played it religion, but did it change their lives? It certainly didn't change the lives of those around them. They weren't on the road to service. They were on the road out of town, weren't they? If service is going to be what God demands, it has to have some action behind it, Right? We can sit around and talk about something all day long, but until we start doing something, nothing's going to change. I heard a man say the other day, nothing's going to change until something changes. That's brilliance, isn't it? Well, the next person that we meet in our parable as we're defining these people is the protector. The protector. It would have been shocking, I'm sure, for Jesus to have told the people that the man who was robbed was helped by an ordinary man. But can you imagine his describing not a Jew helping him, but a hated Samaritan helping a Jew who had been ignored by his countrymen? Of course, given the, the mutual hatred, one would think, well, the Samaritan would have just finished him off, let alone help him. Him on out of this world, right? Now today we call this the parable of the Good Samaritan. When this parable was spoken, we don't read about the Good Samaritan. Jews wouldn't use those two words side by side in a sentence to save their lives. There were no Good Samaritans. They were only deadbeats and no accounts. That's what my granny used to call them. Now the compassion of The Good Samaritan is demonstrated in the things that he did and in the things he was supposed to do. Now, we ought to be thankful for the Good Samaritan. But was he supposed to help this man? Yes. Yes, he was supposed to help him. When you have opportunity do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith, that's always been a principle for God. That's not just a New Testament commandment. That's come on down through the... Through the ages, he did what he was supposed to do. When he saw this, it stirred him up. It troubled him. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. It called him to action to do something. I believe if he had passed that man on by, he wouldn't have gotten a wink of sleep that night. I think it would have kept him up all the time. And it should have if he had done that. We ought to apply that to our lives. I think that's the foundation of godly service. When he looked down at a half-dead man, something inside of him said, I need to help this man. Now I know he's a Jew. Probably doesn't want me touching him. I imagine if you asked that man if he were able to be conscious at that time, he would have been glad for that Samaritan to lay hands on him. Sometimes we get closer to God when we're on our backs looking straight up. He was needy. The Samaritan didn't help him because he was worthy. He helped him because he needed help. It just wasn't logical for the Samaritan to help this enemy in need if we talked to the rest of the world. The two Jews, they passed on by because he was sorry. They didn't know if he was a Jew or not, I I don't guess. Maybe they did. Why did the Samaritan help him? Was it because he had this nice, warm, fuzzy relationship that we mistake for love all the time? We love our brethren. That is a form of love, and we need to have it. Paul commanded it. Brotherly love. We feel good when we're in the presence of one another. He wouldn't have felt good in the presence of this Jew. He showed an academic love. Agape love. A love that says, I'm going to do what's best for you. Whether I like you or not, we can define service all day. We can understand what service is by definition. But it does us no good unless we understand what it does. That's my second point. Godly service is a service of action, not just words. Remember what James said, James 2, beginning with verse 14? What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? That's a rhetorical question. Of course it can't. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, you give them none of those things needful to the body. What doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. A man may say, hey, I have faith. For you have faith, I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. James said, I'll show you my faith through my works. We need to understand that. This man didn't pass by on the other side. Instead, he moved toward the injured man. See, service causes us to move toward something. If we're going to serve Jesus in the manner that He served the people, we have to be a part of their lives, right? We have to, be, we have to know what's going on. We have to have some action. In 1 Corinthians 9:19 through 22, in that passage, Paul makes the statement, "I'm all things to all men." That's, a, that's an amazing statement. That's a statement that all of us ought to be able to say. That's a statement that if we don't understand what it means, we better understand what it means and apply it to our lives. So what does it mean? We know he couldn't have been talking about doctrine. He taught the same thing in every church everywhere he went, 1 Corinthians 4, 17. He wasn't talking about, well, this group over here thinks in a faith-only salvation, of which James just denounced. Paul was all things to all people because he connect with them he could connect with them where they were in life I'm all things to all people I'm going to make a relationship with them in some way He could talk to the uneducated he could talk to those who worked with their hands he could talk to the highly educated he could talk to a Jew he obviously could talk to a Gentile he could understand their mindset he knew where they were coming from and he could be all things to all men I don't want us to forget the Samaritan moved towards someone in service. He didn't just simply go by on the other side. He didn't even just walk over and look down at the man and think, boy, I'm glad that's not me. A Pharisee might have done that, mightn't he? Man, it may have been a Pharisee that did it. I'm glad I'm not like this publican. I want us to keep in mind also, Christian service can be overlooked. But we still keep serving. We, we're not looking for a pat on the back, are we? I want to tell you about a, a, something that happened during World War II. England needed to increase its coal manufacturing production and Winston Churchill called together all the labor leaders to enlist their support. And he said, I've got this vision that I see. He said, when when we win the war and and we're going to hold a, a, a parade in Piccadilly, circus after the war. He said, this is what I see. I'm going to see people coming through and us honoring them. He said, first of all, we're going to see the sailors come by because they kept the waterways open and they defended us from an attack from the sea. Then would come the soldiers who, who had come home from Dunkirk and had gone on in to Africa and defeated Rommel. And then would come the pilots who who had defeated the Luftwaffe from the sky and taken care of the Air Force of Germany. He said, last of all, you know who's going to come in? He said, those who were sweat-stained and soot-soaked men in miners' caps who were down in the earth working and producing coal so that the war effort could continue. And from 10,000 throats, someone may say, where were you when the war was going on? And they're going to say, I was down in the earth with my face toward the coal. Even though you couldn't see me. Not all jobs in the church are prominent and glamorous, if there are any. But they're all needful. And often it is the people with their faces to the coal who... Or getting down and doing the work that no one else wants to do and they're overlooked for that. But guess what? God doesn't overlook anything. We need to be on the road to service. We need to be working for Him and not for those around us. We perform our action because of what Jesus accomplished. That's why we do it. What He accomplished was an act of love under even worse circumstances than what we see of the good Samaritan or what happened to those good men in World War II. Just like the Samaritan, he did something for a bunch of hateful people who cared less for him and wouldn't have done for him what he did for them. Notice what Paul said in Romans 5, beginning with verse 6. He said, For when you were yet without strength, In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. When you didn't have strength to save yourselves, when you didn't have the strength to pull yourself out of the gutter, to get out of a life of sin, Christ died for you. He said, but scarcely for a righteous man will one die. He said, yet peradventure for a good man some might die. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, now notice that while we were yet sinners, God Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, what does that mean? While we were hateful, unloving, ungodly, didn't care anything about Him, He allowed Himself to be nailed to the cross and hung up before the public, and looked down on them as they went by, wagging their heads. Oh, if you're the if you're the Christ, come down from the cross. He died for that group of people of which we have been a part. But thankfully for God's grace, we're no longer a part of those people. Godly service can be defined. It does something definitely. And finally, this is our final point and third point. It demonstrates something. In order to be found justified in the sight of God, the lawyer had to exhibit some necessary qualities that would have brought him into fellowship with God. Jesus said, You know the law, go what what do you think it says? See, godly service exhibits in us a relationship with Jesus. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day and I said, We don't hear about personal relationship or having a personal relationship with Jesus necessarily in sermons anymore, do we? I got to thinking about that and I said, you know, I think that's because we've, we've kind of allowed the, the denominational world to hijack that term from us. Jesus said, "Come unto, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We better have a personal relationship with Jesus Let's not allow the denomination of the world to hijack that from us because without a personal relationship with Jesus, we can't exhibit the proper attitudes, the proper characteristics that will get us into heaven. Now, not faith alone, and I think that's what most people intend. And if we look at this lawyer, if he had been able to have exhibited what he said, love your God and love your neighbor as yourself, He would have humbled himself. He would have gone away and he would have converted his ideas to what God wants into what God wants. Right? But he wasn't able to do that. Near the end of the parable, Jesus asked the lawyer, He said, Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him who fell among the thieves? This lawyer couldn't even bring himself to... to Say the Samaritan's name. He hated him so badly. He simply said, well, the one who showed mercy on him. Yeah. Now he was left without an excuse. He didn't get his vindication that he wanted. The second question the lawyer had asked, who is my neighbor, had been turned on him. Jesus said, who do you think he is? What kind of neighbor... Are you? We better determine that as we walk the road to service. See, service exhibits something in us. And I want us to notice another parable where Jesus exposed to us in even greater detail what service does. That's found in Matthew 25. The passage is 31-46. We're not going to read that, but in that parable you have some sheep and you have some goats. And you have some requirements if you're going to be a sheep or a goat. One person mused, he said, you know, I've read that parable over and over and I've never found any shoats or any jeep. We can't be a little of both. We're one or the other, right? We're either servants or we're not to God. We either are in or we're out. You know, when I was in school at the Memphis School of Preaching, I hated the thought of taking logic class so badly that... In the summer of 2008, I had an opportunity to either go to logic class or go to southern India for a whole month. I went to India. Actually, I went for five weeks. But as we look at this parable and we consider logic, it tells us some, some very important aspects of reasoning. In logic, there's a, call, there's a law that is called the excluded middle. Now what that means is you can't be this and at the same time be that or not be this. You're either this or you're not, and you're not something else. In essence, that's what the law of the excluded middle is. We're either sheep or we're goats. We can't be a little of one, a little bit of the other. We can't have a little bit of sin in our lives but then be mostly faithful to God. We can't be a Christian or be a sinner and then just be a little bit of a Christian. That doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. That's the law of the excluded middle. There isn't a fence to straddle. It doesn't exist. We're either one or the other. See, throughout the New Testament, we're taught about godly works. And how godly works is the part of man's responsibility in gaining salvation according to God's scheme of redemption. Now, we're not saved by works that would cause someone to be able to boast, Ephesians 2.9, but we have to understand what kind of work Paul was talking about. He's talking about a work where I say, well, I worked my way to heaven. I got there. No, I didn't get there. I didn't deserve to even be on the road. By God's grace, He allowed me to go that way, but I had to do some things. But those are godly works, works that God instituted. I want us to notice a few of those works. I want you to pay close attention to these words. Then they said unto Him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Do you know what Jesus' answer was? John 6, 28-29. This is the work of God, that you believe on Him whom He hath sent. All of a sudden now, faith is a work. Paul commanded that we should repent and turn to God and do works worthy of repentance, Acts 26.20. When we confess by our mouths unto salvation, Romans 10.10, that's a work. When we walk down into the water, I have to walk into that water, but it's not a work of man. I submit to someone. First, God, and then allow someone to baptize me. And that's a work that saves, First Peter 3.21. Without the works of God, we can't be saved. And we have to have every single one of them. Baptism is no more important than faith. It's no more important than repentance. It's no more important than confession. But let me tell you something, it's exactly just as important. And we can't leave it out. Because Paul warned this, Second Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We better work the works of God. The road to a life of service, the road to Jericho is not an easy road to travel. But the walk to the cross wasn't easy either. I'd rather walk the road to service than the one to the cross. The road less traveled includes the road to a changed life that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, and the road to service. We can't walk the road to service until we've had a changed life. That's the obedience of the gospel plan of salvation. I just listed those works that have to be completed in order to be a child of God. If you've never done that, don't leave here today not being a child of God. Not having worked your way into salvation, but having submitted to the works of God. If you have, you become unfaithful. Come back to the Lord today. Don't stay away. Walk the road to service as we stand and as we sing.